Amen. It feels like it's been a while since we've been in Mark, but we are back in Mark this morning. As you see on your programs, we're going to be in Mark chapter 10. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Mark chapter 10, uh, verse 41. That's where we're going to be at this morning, Mark chapter 10, verse 41. And we're going to be finishing off a passage of Scripture that we began a few weeks back, Mark chapter 10, verse 41. And the Word of God says, And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave to all. For even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Lord, we come to you once more as we turn our attention and our focus to your word. I pray that you would open up our hearts and minds to receive what you have for us today, Lord. Uh, tear down any obstacles from receiving what you have for us. Uh, be with me, Lord, uh, your servant, as I exposit this word, that I might do so faithfully and clearly under the influence of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. You may be seated. Amen. So as we jump back into Mark this morning, let us remember where we last left off. If you remember, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, had come to Christ with a request that asked to sit at his left and right hand in the coming kingdom. When he comes in glory, they wanted the best of seats. Christ then responds that this was not his to give, that these seats are prepared for the ones who it had been prepared for. And this is where we pick up the text this morning in verse 41. As we see uh, there in verse 41, the ten heard it and they began to be indignant at James and John. Now the ten here refers to the rest of the disciples. We know there are 12 of them and James and John are the two that presented the question. So the ten, the other disciples, heard it and they became indignant. A showing of anger. They were angry at James and John. And then we see Jesus call them over to him to tell them that you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall be not so among you. In other words, the Gentiles, the unbelievers, that is the way they act. They seek to lord over others. They seek to exercise authority and power and position. But it's not so with you. You are, you are not like them. He goes on to say, whoever would be first among you must be a slave of all. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. We've seen this type of reflection before. Those who want to be first here will wind up last. Those who want to be the most important will wind up last. But Christ is telling them that if you desire to be great. If you desire to be first, and you must be a servant and you must be a slave. He says, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, the Son of Man here is a messianic reference to Christ. And here he says that he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, we got to be careful with that word ransom. I know there's a theory of the atonement that says that Christ gave his life as a ransom over to Satan. I believe it was Origen who constructed this theory back in the third century. But we know that the ransom that was paid was a substitutionary atonement, the debt that we owed for our sins. And Christ came and give, to give his life as a ransom for those who would believe in his name. As we look at our passage, as we consider the text this morning, what is it that we see? Well, we see this call by our Lord and Savior to servanthood, this call to be a servant, this call not to 
desire, the, the best of seats, this call to become last, this call to be a slave, this call to be a servant to others. I titled this sermon this morning, as you see in your program, The Model Servant, because I want us to look at the passage again and see a few things that we can take away from our passage that show us how to be this model servant. What does our passage show us about a model servant? And number one, a model servant is willing to be wronged. Look at verse 41 again. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. When the other disciples heard that James and John wanted to sit next to Christ, they were unpleased. How dare them ask such a thing? How dare them exclude us? How dare them not give us the opportunity to ask Christ ourselves to be seated next to him? You know, as I was putting this sermon together and I was trying to draw out this first point, I thought, what was it about the disciples' reaction that shows us bad servanthood? If the point that Christ is making here is about servanthood and not desiring the best of seats, what was it about the disciples that was antithetical to that? Well, it's obvious that it was because they became indignant, that they were angry and they were frustrated at the request that James and John made to Christ. So we can point to the fact that this whole matter upset them and say, that is not true servanthood. But I don't think that truly answers our question. The question is not how they reacted. The question is, what was it that made them react out in this way? What was it that bothered them so much? What was it that drove them to such anger? Was it jealousy? Was it covetousness? Well, I don't think so because there was nothing to be jealous or to covet over. Christ didn't give James and John the positions that they asked for. So there's nothing to be desired there. And then I realized the reason they were so upset is not jealousy, it's not covetousness, but it was because they felt they were wronged by their fellow disciples. This made them angry. It made them angry that James and John had the audacity to ask a request of Christ that would exclude them. See, if James and John's request would have been granted, then that means that they James and John would get to sit next to Christ. And it means that them, the rest of the disciples, would sit in the lesser seats and they would sit at the lesser table. It means that James and John would carry the prestige that they also coveted. How dare they ask such a thing? Why didn't they ask us if we would like to sit at those seats as well? How can they exclude us? I thought we were all in this together, I mean, here we are as the 12, we are working together, we are serving together, and you never even thought to include us in your request? You never even thought to tell us that you were going to ask Christ this request? You just ask him this question out of the blue, behind our backs? What kind of trick are you trying to pull here? This is a slap in the face. We trusted you, we served with you, and look what you have done to us. This is what made the disciples so upset. Not because someone else got something they didn't get. Because remember, James and John never got what they asked for. As we read in the previous verses, Christ didn't grant them their request. He said that it was not for him to grant. This has already been prepared by the Father. So they couldn't have gotten upset at being overlooked. They couldn't have gotten upset at being passed over. They were upset because they felt they were wronged by their fellow disciples. I mean, you would have thought that Christ would have dispelled their concerns. 
There they were standing there with Christ when Christ refused to grant James and John their requests. Shouldn't have that been enough? Yet their anger was too much. They were so upset. They were indignant over what James and John had done for asking this question. It's as if they missed everything that Christ was saying. Hey, hey, Peter, Andrew, Thomas, Judas, calm down. Didn't you just hear what I said? Nothing has been granted over you. But the disciples couldn't hear it. They couldn't hear it through their anger. They were that much upset. And I think we've all been here a time or two when we've become so angry at something or someone, we don't hear what the other person is saying. This is especially true in marriages. That's why it's better to let your spouse cool off, right, before you try explaining some things. Sometimes they're so upset they're not going to hear you anyway. I mean, you can give the speech of your life, but all they're thinking about is clearing the couch for you so you can sleep on the couch. <laughs> the, the speech is going to go wasted. Don't even try it. But it's almost like this is what the disciples were doing here. James and John, they weren't granted any seats. The fact of the matter is the situation is the same as it was 10 minutes ago. The only thing that has changed was their distrust and their resentment and their unwillingness to let go of the feeling of being wronged. And as we see in Christ's response to this, they were not displaying true servanthood. See, the thing about servants is that they have to be willing to be wronged. Now, I'm not saying it's right. I'm not saying it's even just. But part of the role of a servant is to be able to serve when you are wrong. And you say, how can that be? I mean, that's not right. It's not just. We can't expect people to serve when they have been treated wrong. That just isn't right. Yet I think in a small way, we've all experienced these expectations. We've all been around someone who treated a waiter or an attendant in a bad way. We've probably even done it ourselves a time or two. By the way, if you're a type of person that likes to treat waiters bad, let me know so I don't go out to eat with you. I, I, I. But even though we know that these waiters or these attendants were treated wrongly, we still expect them to do their job. Because we understand that part of the job, part of their job, is to know that they will sometimes be treated badly. Not saying it's right, but it's part of the role of being in their position. It's what they do as servants. This is what they signed up for. They are servants, and we know servants must sometimes endure these difficulties. Yet rarely are we willing to endure these difficulties ourselves. Rarely are we willing to be treated unjust or with contempt. Rarely are we willing to be treated wrongly. Why? Maybe because we truly don't think of ourselves as servants. You know, of all the Christian virtues that we can display, I think the willingness to be wronged and treated unjustly might be the most distinct of them all. Before we can come into the kingdom, we must set aside our pride. And that shows that we are willing to be humble. A willingness to be wrong is basically a display of humility. And humility is one of the clearest marks of a Christian. Of a Christian is anything. He or she is humble. It is the first step into the kingdom of God. You lay aside who you think you are. You lay aside your pride and you set it aside and you say, God, I cannot get to you on my own. We acknowledge our fallenness and we acknowledge our imperfections. We show that we are dependent creatures and we call upon the name of the Lord for salvation. Our Lord, I am nothing. I need you. I need your help. I lay aside everything that I am. That is the first entrance into the kingdom of God, humility. 
So humility is the distinct mark of the believer. And a willingness to be wronged is a product of humility. And when I say it's a distinct virtue from others, I really mean that. Just think of all the virtues that we display as Christians. The virtue of being a faithful spouse. You know what? Unbelievers can do that. The virtue of giving to the poor and giving to people in need. People do that all the time outside of Christ. Yet rarely do we see unbelievers display the humility to be wronged. Rarely do unbelievers allow themselves to be treated badly. Why? Because pride doesn't allow for it. Pride leaves no room for you to be treated harshly or unjustly. Pride says when you are wrong, you must repay evil for evil. 1 Corinthians 6, 1. You know what, go ahead and turn there with me. I'm going to camp here for a little bit. This is, this is, I want to show you something here. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 1. Normally I kind of just read off the text for sacred time, but I want you to see this with me. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to the law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle the dispute between the brothers? But brothers go to law against brother and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourself wrong and defraud even your own brothers. I want you to notice a couple of things about this passage. First, Paul is admonishing the Corinthians for their willingness to take their dispute over to unbelievers. Rather than settling their differences within the church, they are taking their cases to unbelieving courts and unbelieving judges. See, their issue or their issues should have been settled in-house. Their differences should have been resolved in the church. And Paul asks, isn't there one person among you who is wise enough to settle the dispute? Now, this is a, this is a rhetorical question. Paul obviously knows that there is at least one person in that church who is able to settle the dispute. He knows that there's one person who's able to give godly counsel. He knows that there's one person who's able to give the advice they need. Yet they continue to choose to go to the unbelieving unbelievers, unbelieving courts, rather than the church. Why is that? Because there were just some things in their life that they weren't willing to submit to God. There were just some things that were too important to put into the hands of God and his people. Yeah, you know, I can trust the church in a lot of ways. I can trust the church to help me to become a better husband and a better wife. And they can teach me some things that will help me grow in my knowledge of God. And they can teach me this and that. But these things over here, these things are, are just too important to leave in the hands of God's people. These things are just too serious. And what are these things? Possessions. Status. Defamation of character, loss. These are things the church may or may not help me win. And these are things that are just too important in my life to leave in the church's hands. So let me take these things to unbelieving courts and unbelieving judges so I can have a better chance at winning. 
because these things are too important in my life. And here's a further indictment. Paul, in a way, agrees with their premise. If their premise is that they must take their disputes to unbelieving courts and unbelieving judges, they must take their dispute out of the church for a better chance at winning, Paul concedes that that may be the case. You ask, how do I know that? Well, because look at the question that he asks. He says, why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? In other words, there's a chance that even if you keep your dispute and your differences in-house, in the church, you still won't get it settled. There's a chance that you still might lose. See, there will be times when not even the wisest counsel inside the church will be able to settle disputes. How do I know that? Because even at our best, we're flawed. We're dealing with a flawed counselor, and we're dealing with two flawed parties. However, I'll take a, a flawed saint over a flawed sinner every, any day. I'll take my chances with the issue getting resolved with the saints. However, Paul knows, as should we, that there will be times in our life when issues will not get resolved the way we want them to or the way that we think they should. And in those times, we have to be willing to be wronged. We have to be willing to be defrauded. Notice the question that Paul asks, why not rather suffer wrong? In other words, you don't always have to be right. You don't always have to win. Look, I, I know you, you want to be right. I, I know that you don't want them to get away with what they did. I know that they caused you great harm. I know you lost confidence in your ability to trust them. But this is what Paul means by suffering. Why not suffer wrong? Look, you may be right. You may have a case. But rather than be defrauded, you would rather defraud your brother. How? By withholding forgiveness. And I hear the pushback to this already. But if I let them get away with it, I'm not teaching them anything. If I, if I let it slide, they, they may do it again. And they, they're going to do it to someone else. And we have to make things right in order for things to go on. We have to lay everything on the table. And I get that. This is why Paul says to go to the church. See if the church can settle the dispute and get it resolved. See if the church can help in reconciliation. With all the parties being satisfied with justice prevailing, with figuring out who was right and who was wrong. But also know this, there will be times in a fallen world where that just will not happen. And here you have two choices. You can harbor resentment and unforgiveness to your brother, or you can be willing to let it go. But what about truth? What about justice? No, Pastor, you're wrong. God is a God of truth. God is a God of justice. Yes, he is. God is the owner of truth and justice. And we cannot do better than he can. Those things belong to him. Before we think about judging things righteously, we have to remember that God owns these things. These things belong to him. They flow from him down to us. We cannot improve on his righteous judgment even if we tried. The only thing we can do is mess it up. Romans 12, 19. Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. If you feel that you were wrong and you don't want to let it go for the sake of 
justice prevailing and truth prevailing, then what you're saying is I don't trust God with justice and truth. Because if I don't avenge myself, things will not be right. If I let it slide, they will never learn. God says, leave it to me. You do what you control. You do what you can do. And let me do what I can do. Go to the church, seek counsel, and if the issue doesn't get resolved there, then do the next thing that is in your control. And what is that? That's to let it go. Let it go and let me handle it. He says here, I will avenge. I will repay. Not only that, he says, go to the person who has wronged you and love him. Feed him or her. Give them a drink of water. Show them kindness for their rudeness or meanness. And and if you say that's something I just cannot do, well, it's because you have not understood what it means to be a servant. And notice the text. It's telling us to do these things for our enemies. Say nothing of our brother and sister in the Lord. If we are commanded to let the offenses of our enemies go and give them to God because he will avenge, then how much more our brothers and sisters in the church? Now, I'm not saying we need to be unwise. Scripture also calls us to be wise as serpents when we are amongst wolves. If you feel someone has truly wronged you, then there are some precautions and there are safety measures that we must put in place in the relationship. Look, if someone never returns something to you, stop letting them borrow it. If someone is taking advantage of you, stop putting yourself in the position to be taken advantage of. That's wisdom. That's just godly wisdom. I'm not saying to be a a spiritual doormat and to let people walk all over you. There is a measure of wisdom that we as Christians must act on. But too many Christians fail to display the distinct mark of Christianity, the mark of humility, the mark of willing to lose, the mark of being defamed and being defrauded, the mark of being slandered and humiliated, all while knowing that Christ will avenge, trusting that justice is in the hands of the Lord, trusting that he is the owner and the arbiter of these things, and these things will ultimately prevail, trusting that God handles justice and truth better than I ever could. Too often, we're like these disciples. We refuse to let it go. We show indignation. We show contempt. We withhold reconciliation. Why? Because we don't want to be wronged. We're offended. It's not right. Look at how much I've done for this person. We shouldn't be treated like that. We don't deserve that. Those who receive the most grace are those who realize they don't deserve grace. The first thing we see about a model servant is that a servant must be willing to be wronged. Man, let us go on. What else does our passage show us? A servant does not seek power. Look at verse 42. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. After Christ sees the disciples become indignant and troubled over the fact that James and John asked to be seated next to him, he noticed something else. He noticed that James and John weren't the only ones who coveted the seats. They were not the only ones who coveted the prestige. Yes, the disciples were upset because they felt they were wronged by James and John, but they felt they were wronged because James and John asked for seats that they too coveted. James and John were not the only ones looking for the prestige. They were not the only ones looking for the status and looking for the honor. The rest were too. Christ shows them that they desire 
the same things the Gentiles do. In other words, your desires are the same as unbelievers. They're the same as pagans. They're the ones who seek these things. They're the ones who seek positions. They're the ones who seek to lord and exercise authority over others. And notice what he says. But it shall not be so among you. The Greek translation of the verb not be or to be here is in the present tense. Esteen, not este. The Greek este is in the future tense. So this would be better translated, it is not this way among you, rather than it shall not be this way among you. You see the difference? See, one is a, a statement, the other is an imperative, a command. Christ here is not giving a command. He's making a statement. He's making a statement about what it means to be a servant. He's not saying, this is what you need to do to be a servant. He's saying, this is what a servant does. In other words, a disciple, a follower of mine, a servant of God does not seek this type of authority and power. It's part of the definition of being a servant. It's what a servant means. If you are a servant, then you don't seek power. You don't seek authority. If I still have to command you to not seek power and authority, then maybe you don't understand what a servant means. Maybe you still have to learn what it means to be a servant because servants do not seek positions. Servants don't seek status. They don't seek power. They don't seek authority. They don't seek prestige. Servants are content with those seats going to someone else. Philippians 2, 3 through 4, we read this. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. The quest for power doesn't see others as more significant than themselves. The one who seeks power and authority always considers themselves to be the ones who are more significant. They are driven, as it says here, by selfish ambition and conceit. You know, the thing about it is, and you know this, you can easily spot someone with a servant's heart. They never covet position. They never covet status. They're always looking to serve where they can. You don't hear much complaining or grumbling or murmuring from them. They go about their service with joy and the light. They don't question why this person was elevated or why that person was given a position. Why? Because they don't assume wrong motives. They don't assume wrong motives of others. and They don't assume wrong motives of their leaders. Why? Because to them, everyone is more significant than they are. If someone is elevated, if someone is given a position, they don't say, how come I wasn't chosen? Why wasn't I given that position? Hey, I've served longer. Hey, I've given more. That position should have gone to me. A model servant doesn't think like that because when a model servant sees others elevated, they say, that person is more significant than I am. In other words, that person deserved it because they're better than me. That's shocking to hear, right? I say that, and you're like, what? what? That person is better than me? It's, it's a hard thing for most people to grasp. And I'm not talking about people outside the church. I'm talking about people inside the church as well. We can't understand that. We don't talk like that. That that person is better than me. Why? Well, the reason that sounds so shocking and hard to accept is because we are used to operating in the world. 
We're used to playing the world's silly games, and we're used to playing by the world's rules. The world has a never-ending appetite for power and authority and status. I mean, I, you see this every day in your jobs. We see this every day at our, at our workplace, don't we? People maneuvering for position, people maneuvering for, for power, people backbiting one another, people gossiping behind each other's back, people complaining when someone gets a position that they coveted. They say things like, oh, they're, they're not qualified, or, or I've been here longer. That, that position should have gone to me, not them. It's no surprise when we spend five days a week in that world to have that type of thinking creep into the church as well. But we must remember who we are. We are not children of the darkness. We are children of the light. We are not conformed to this world. We have been transformed by the renewing of our mind. N notice what that text says, that, that transform of the renewing our, in, of our mind in Romans 12.1. It, it doesn't say be transformed by the renewing of your actions. It says be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Because before you start to act different, you have to think different. You have to see yourself and everyone else around you differently than the way you saw them before you came to Christ. Before Christ, it was you, then others. After Christ, it is others, then you. And look, this is, this is not negotiable. It's not like you can be a servant of Christ another way or without this. Oh, you know what? I'll, I'll be a servant of Christ other ways. I'm a servant of Christ by reading my Bible and by coming to church all the time and by, by doing things in the church and, and, and by, by helping you out here and there. But this counting other, others better than myself, this, this willing to let go of some things and, and be defrauded and be wrong, that's just not me. You just don't know the type of person I am. You don't know my, my personality. Remember what Christ said to the disciples, though, in our text. It is not so among you. You who are my followers, you who are my servants, you do not seek power because if you do, then you are no different than the Gentiles. You are no different than the unbelievers. That's what they seek. That's what they want. That's what they desire. Christ is saying, my servants don't seek those things. They're not concerned about who seats where. They're not concerned about the status and the prestige and the fame and the glory. Servants are not concerned with those things. But even in that, notice his goodness. He says, those who are servants, he will make great. Those who are slaves to all, he will make first. A second thing that we see about a model servant in our passage is that model servants do not seek power. And lastly, I'm, I'm just going to touch on this because I know we've gone a little long on the first two points. The third thing we see is that a model servant models Christ. Look at verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Christ says, you want to know what a servant looks like? Look to me. Now, there are plenty of great men and women of God that we can look to, but there's only one Christ. There's only one Christ who displayed true servanthood, true humility, who gave up more than we can ever imagine. What do you have to give up to be a servant? Think about it. What do you have to give up? 
What are some things that, that, that bother you about being a servant, giving up? Pride? Prestige? Christ gave his life. He gave his life. He was humiliated. We, we saw that in the catechism this morning when we read our, through our catechism by God's providence. We talked about the humiliation of Christ. The creator of this world, the one who sits in glory, humiliated himself. He became man. He became like one of us. And we're upset because we got to let some things go. You want a model servant? Look to Christ. We haven't given up nearly as much as what he has given up. Philippians, we, we read this earlier. Let me, let's finish off that passage in Philippians. Philippians 2. Let's turn to Philippians 2.5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. We want to blow to our ego. You want to kill your ego? My friend, just look to the cross. Focus on the cross. And there you will see a humiliation to be desired. There you will see a humbleness and a servanthood to be desired. A Christian is a servant. Again, that's not negotiable. You say, how? How's a, why is a Christian a servant? Because a Christian mimics Christ. And if Christ was anything, he was a servant. In the Old Testament, we call him the suffering servant. He came to give his life for many. He came, again, as he says in our text, not to be served, but he came to serve. You want a model humility? You want a model servanthood? My friend, then look to Jesus, because Jesus is the model servant. Amen. Let's pray. Let us stand up and pray.